Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And before we look at that, I just have to make mention, today is my 40th wedding anniversary. So happy anniversary, love. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, Caleb. I'm not even 40 years old. <laughs> but uh, happy anniversary, love. It is our great privilege, of course, to possess the Word of God. We sang of the Word of Life, and our desire is to, to see and to hear and to know Christ, to know God from the Bible. This is where you're going to know Him. You're not going to go on a hill and hum and learn about Jesus Christ. You'll have an impression, all right, but it might be the pizza you had from last night. The only objective truth that rightly defines and explains God is the Scriptures. So we have our copy there before you. And so we, it is our privilege to study the Word of God. For the Bible alone is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, sufficient Word of the living God. That's the blessing of the Bible. And from its pages, we hear the voice of the living God. Okay? And, and as we study, we see, we see the image of the living God. We see Christ from its pages. Okay. So with all that, you take your copy there of your inerrant word there, open to the New Testament epistle of Ephesians. And today, we will find ourselves in chapter 3. And as you know, we've been carefully working through this great epistle, one verse, even one word at a time. Because we believe in plenary inspiration, every word is inspired by God, therefore demands our attention. Not that every word has the same weight as any other word, but every word, every phrase, every sentence has demands our careful attention. That's why we go one verse at a time and look at words and care about grammar. Okay, And as we have done that up to Ephesians 3, we have observed from these previous two chapters the grounds the foundation of our spiritual unity in the church. There is a truth that all who are in Christ are one in Christ. And all the amazing truths that Paul mentions in the first two chapters are true of every single true believer in Christ. Okay? I remind you of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, notice, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That incredible truth, as we saw many weeks ago, that is the archway. In the verses that follow, Paul delineates the blessings that are ours equally. All the way to chapter 2, verse 10. If you look at chapter 2, verse 10, notice where he says, Therefore we... All of us who are in Christ are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So you have blessed us in 1.3, you have 2.10, we are His workmanship. All the truths mentioned up to this point are all equally true of every single person who is in Christ Jesus, including our spiritual deadness. If you were to go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 3, for instance, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Okay, So not only are the blessings true of every single person, but every single person outside of Christ is indeed right now spiritually dead. Every one of us 
once were spiritually dead, equally in a bad situation. When you look at chapter 2, verse 4, for instance, he continues this us idea, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, verse 5, when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive, and so it goes forth, okay? All this to say that up to 2.10, it is talking about the spiritual unity of Christ's church. There are no have-nots and have-lessers, right? Everyone who's in Christ is equally blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What does he say by that? Every one of us is equally chosen before the foundation of the world. Every single person in Christ is equally predestined to adoption. Every single one in Christ is fully, equally redeemed by the blood of Christ. Every single person in the church is fully forgiven of all their sins. There are no haves and have lessers okay? in, this, in these spiritual truths. Okay? We're not talking spiritual giftedness that's for service. We're talking about the blessings, the spiritual blessings purchased by Jesus Christ through his cross as it refers to salvation and our standing before God. Okay? As it's been said many times, the ground at the foot of the cross is what? Equal, level. Right? It's level. Everybody's on the same level. Okay. When you come to chapter 2, verse 11, as we follow the flow of Paul's thought here, he begins then to focus on the unity in the church between the Jew and the Gentile by the reconciling death of Christ. Christ, through his death, reconciled the Jews and the Gentiles, those who were once at enmity, those who were once at opposition, those who once hated them each other. And the Old Testament set up barriers as well. Remember, you, the Jews couldn't marry a Gentile. They couldn't even touch a Gentile before going to the temple and all these things. So there are, there are Old Testament barriers and then there's spiritual pride that just made it intensified and the hatred between the Jew and the Gentile in the first century specifically was very intense. But in Christ Jesus, those two become one new man. The, 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 the barriers are gone. There's no longer any Jew or Gentile, spiritually speaking. There's no longer slave or free. There's no, Galatians even says there's no longer male and female. That's all gone. Those delineations are gone. In Christ Jesus, we are one. Okay? And that's the emphasis in chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. This... Uh, Each of us, this one new man, Christian, Jew and Gentile in Christ, are now Christian. Those Jews and Gentiles are both equally have access to God. That's 2.18. We are both equally the inner sanctuary of God. We are both, Jews and Gentiles, equally the dwelling place of God. Okay, that's all chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. All equally Okay? No distinction. Um, that truth is amazing. It, it, it's, it's amazing. It's the amazing grace of God. We might not see the importance 2,000 years removed from that first century hatred, but pick out any ethnic group you want and the hatred. Pick the north and the south of the U.S., right? And then blend those two together and, and have them sit in the same pews worshiping Jesus Christ together. That, that's the same kind of idea here, okay? So that amazing truth of the oneness in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles, all people are haves, there are no have-nots in the church, okay? We are all equally fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We are all fellow members of God's family, 
equally. Okay, and that truth is so important to Paul. I just it's, it's we have to get our hands around this. That truth of the unity between the Jew and the Gentile in the church is so important to Paul that he mentions that in Romans, he mentions it in 1 Corinthians, he mentions it in Galatians, he mentions it here in Ephesians, he mentions it in Colossians. It is, it is uppermost in his heart because he knows the church's survival is to understand the unity between the, the Jew and the Gentile. Okay? Um, so then, that unity is a reality spiritually speaking, because it's been accomplished in Christ. Practically, we still wrestle with those things, right? For instance, in chapter 4, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. We're going to come up to this in a couple weeks, but this is an exhortation to carry out what Christ has already accomplished. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve, notice what? The unity of the Spirit. Notice, it's not create the unity, it's preserve it. It's to guard that which has already been done. Okay, It's to keep it, it's to guard it. So be diligent, verse 3, to preserve, keep, guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, that unity that he's speaking of is what he's mentioning in chapter 2 or, or in chapter 1 all the way to 2. That unity that's been accomplished by Christ. There is no part, there's no place in the church of Jesus Christ for what we see today and have throughout church history. All these fractions and factions where you have animosity, you have prejudice, you have jealousies and envy. You have sinful envy. Um, if you're in Christ, you are my brother. If you, if you are in Christ, we are fellow members of, of God. doesn't mean you don't stand up for doctrinal truths. I'm not saying that. What you're saying, if you're in Christ, you're family. And to shun a family for the sake of sinful envy and jealousies and ethnic and whatever part you want to put in it, that's sinful. That's absolutely sinful. That's to not understand Ephesians. That's to not understand what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and what we're being exhorted to in chapter 4. But we're not there yet. (laughs) We're not in chapter 4 yet. In chapter 3, backing up here, notice how he starts here. He says, For this reason, in chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason. For what reason? Well, the previous section. And the previous section is the the, the Jew and Gentile unity. Okay, For that reason, Paul says in verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now notice what's missing in verse 1. There's no verb to finish the sentence. It's like, okay, for the sake of you Gentiles, what? And then verse 2 is like a parenthesis. He digresses back into the Jew-Gentile thing. So it's very interesting. In verse 1, he wants to pray. He wants to get to prayer because look at verse 14. Verse 14 completes what verse 1 started. Verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Right? But in verse 1, for, for, the, for the sake of Christ, for the, for the sake of you Gentiles, and you're still waiting for him to finish the thought. Verse 14 finishes the thought. Verses 2 through 13 is parentheses. It's fascinating. It shows how important the issue is to Paul, therefore to God, because the Holy Spirit is the one moving Paul to write this, to get a grasp of the understanding 
of the source of Paul's ministry and his message. Because look at what he's going to do here. He's going to emphasize, he's going to discuss the his ministry here in verses 2 and following. He's going to spend 13 verses on the source of his ministry, the source of his message. Therefore, why you and I should trust him. Why you and I should even listen to him. Okay? And, and if you know anything about Paul and studying the New Testament through the book of Acts, he was always being questioned by the Jews for his message. They claimed he was a self-appointed prophet, a self-appointed apostle, and had his own message. So he's always defending himself because he's forced to. And why he's forced to is because he has the truth. And if you, if, you, if you abandon Paul, like so many churches want to do, you abandon Jesus Christ. Because he's an apostle by the will of God. He's an apostle by God's choosing and commissioning. And when you reject Paul, you reject Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. right? That's a big deal. So he's going to give us reasons here why we should listen to what he says. In other words, he's going to give reasons. He's going to give evidence of an authentic Christian ministry. You're going to see elements of an authentic Christian ministry right here. Um, so the, think of this. How important is authenticity to you? Just let that rattle around. Does it, does it matter to you? Or is just the convenience, the convenient church, that's the one we want to go to, right? Or does authenticity mean anything to us, right? Authentic means genuine, true, the Webster says, worthy of acceptance or belief as conforming to or based on fact. Okay? It implies being fully trustworthy. The opposite would be false, counterfeit, sham, phony. In a world filled with liars and con artists, under the sway of the devil, we must fight for the truth, we must cling to the truth, we must defend the truth, we must seek to listen to the truth. Authenticity is everything. Authenticity is everything. False prophets have always been attempting to deceive. Are there false prophets today? Oh yeah. You'd be you maybe you wouldn't be amazed because you've been in different places. How many professing churches would not would not say that's true? Oh, that's archaic. You're divisive. No, there are false prophets to this day. Throughout ancient Israel's history and the church's history, there have been countless false prophets and false teachers. They are self-appointed prophets with their own message. These counterfeits are very spiritually dangerous. They seek to destroy people. And to this day, they still do because they're energized by the same source. The same devil that energized them in the past is the one who energized them today. He's going to energize them tomorrow. right? And he seeks to destroy, does he not? So, our Lord warns of them, doesn't he, Matthew 7? Verse 15, he says, Beware. Be on the lookout. For who? For false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay? Obviously, that tells you their deception's intentional. Their deception is dangerous. Ravenous wolves. Jesus Christ identifies them as ravenous wolves. Ravenous means excessively greedy for food. Okay? Not easily satisfied. Their appetite is unquenchable. Now think of this. What is the food 
of a wolf? Sheep. And who are you and me? Oh, that's right. Sheeps. <laughs> right? So, he warns that these false prophets are out to consume, devour, destroy the people of God. Okay? How will you know them? He says in verse 16, by their fruits. They can cloak, they can put on sheep's clothing, they can only go so far because their true inner disposition will come forth. They will show who they are by how they treat the sheep. Didn't Jesus, when he reinstated Peter, said, Peter, if you love me, abuse my sheep. No, feed my sheep. Yeah? Feed my sheep. If you love Jesus, true shepherd, take care of his people. Right? False shepherds want to eat God's people. True shepherds want to feed, lead, and guard God's people. That's a big deal. Authenticity is huge. Authenticity is everything. Okay? Um, their true self will, exp- will come forward, the false teachers. Their deception can only go so far. In Ezekiel, you, we could turn there. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, our Lord gives a stern warning to the spiritual leaders of Israel. Ezekiel 34, and this whole chapter is worth reading, but we're only going to look at a couple of verses here. How about uh, 1, 2, and 3, perhaps? 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? See, that's what a shepherd does, right? But instead, they're fleecing, not feeding. Verse 3 says it, You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Verse 4, finally. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. Diseased, you have not healed. Broken, you have not bound up. Scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. Right? There's the fruit of false teachers. There's the evidence of a false shepherd. They're severe they abuse, they fleece, they don't feed, they don't lead, they don't care for. Okay? Um, how about the New Testament? This is Old Testament, and sure enough, there's false teachers and false prophets everywhere. We'll go to 2 Peter real quick, please. 2 Peter. And look at chapter 2, if you would, with me. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Apostle Peter, who certainly was trained well by the Lord Jesus himself, says in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, that's Israel, just as there will will also be, future-looking, false teachers among you. Now he's talking about the church. False teachers among you, what will they do in verse 1? Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Not just heresies, but destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2, Many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. That means the way of Christ will be blasphemed. 
because of their lifestyle, their licentious living. Verse 3, and their greed. One thing common about false teachers and prophets is greed. Remember ravenous wolves? Their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, for their destruction is not asleep. And that will do for there. Again, Peter's talking future from his point of view of the church. False teachers have been infiltrating and attacking Christ's church ever since Christ was on the planet, ever since the inception of the church. There are false prophets, there are false teachers, okay? And they will exploit you. They don't feed, they fleece. Go to 1 John 4, please. To the right of Peter, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John's probably written in the 90s, okay? Same time period as Revelation and in and the the epistles of John, but so what I'm what I mean by this, this is just toward the end of the first century of the Christian era. Verse 1, chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. You could put person there just so it's not confusing, okay? Because the spirit's behind what's going to be following here. Don't believe every person, but test the spirits, the persons, to see whether they are from God. So you must be able to do that, because we're commanded to do that. Verse 4, because, why should we test and not just openly listen to everybody because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets. Verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Here's part of the test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now there's a whole lot behind this, but what is basically the point has to do with the doctrine of Christ coming in the flesh is this teaching that we hold to, right? That Christ had pre-existence in heaven, was sent by the Father to the planet, took on flesh to fulfill the law, to go to the cross, to make payment for our sin, buried and resurrected in the physical body. There were so many false teachers, and this is pre-Gnosticism, early Gnosticism, that, that believed that spirit was good and flesh is evil, so God who's good and He is spirit would not take on flesh, so Christ did not come in the flesh. It just seemed to have come in the flesh. Okay. A similar teaching would be the Muslims in thinking on the cross, it just seemed like Jesus died. It just, Or they would say, it was someone who looked like Jesus. I mean, how retarded. Anyway, um, sorry. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, right? That's a false teacher. See? That's a false teacher. The person who believes... That, every, that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, in, in fact, has took on full humanity, is from God. That's what it says. Verse 3, every spirit, every person that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. Okay? So there are false teachers. There's false prophets. Authenticity is what I'm, is my thought here. Paul is battling these things here, and so he's battling for authenticity because authenticity then draws you in to listen to the truth and protects you from these dudes. Right? These are bad dudes. These are bad guys. These are spiritual terrorists, right? These are spiritual terrorists. Um and that's more destructive than guys who fly airplanes into buildings because these people go after your soul. Right? All right. Go to 1 Timothy 4, please. 1 Timothy 4. 
Paul be writing to young Timothy here, and this is obviously one of the pastoral epistles, so this is very dear to me in particular, because obviously. Verse 1 of chapter 4, notice what Paul says here. But the Spirit, Holy Spirit, explicitly, clearly says that in later times, and we are certainly in them, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to, notice, deceitful spirits and doctrines of what? Demons. Deceitful spirits and doctrine of demons. Verse 2, he's going to explain further what are doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, these guys are, as with the branding iron, stopping right there, what is the meaning of verse 2? If your conscience is seared, what is the implication? Chopped in the devil, amen. But if, if he uses a branding iron, if, he, if, you, if you put a hot iron on your flesh here as it heals and what have you, what happens to that area? It's scarred. It's, it, it's dead, right? You can't feel it. It's insensitive. This is talking about their conscience. Their conscience is insensitive. The conscience is a gift from God. If you abuse it, it can become inactive. Okay. And that's what's happening to these false teachers who have fallen away from the faith, which means they once were following Christ, at least outwardly. Obviously, they can't be saved and lose their salvation. So these are folks who are in the midst, following the faith, have fallen away. They've decided to abandon the truth to follow the doctrines of demons. And how did that happen? Verse 2, their conscience was seared by practicing lying, the hypocrisy of lying, and not dealing with it and living according to their lies. It branded their conscience. Verse 3 specifically speaks to doctrines of demons. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Okay? That's interesting. Those are doctrines of demons. To say that you shouldn't get married which goes directly against Genesis 2, right? And God's normal pattern of things, unless you're specially gifted like Paul. But if you're not, marriage is a gift from God. Doesn't Scripture say a man who finds a woman, a wife, has found a good thing, right? A good wife, a righteous wife, is a gift from God. But there were these false teachers that said, if you want to be a super-duper Christian, you don't get married, right? You want to really be sanctified? Don't get married, to which I would say, you want to get, you want to get sanctified? Get married. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Um, and forbidding from eating certain foods. Now think about this. The false teachers like to appeal to our flesh. Because our flesh naturally wants to do something to kind of earn God's favor. That's why legalism is so effective. It so plays to our flesh. Every one of us is a legalist by nature. Every single one of us. That's why we have to have communion to remind us of the grace of God in the scriptures, right? So every one of us is a legalist by nature. Our flesh is easily enticed to, into works or to not doing something in order to think I'm earning God's favor, I'm becoming a superstar Christian. I'm not married, right? I don't eat that food, right? I'm a super saint, right? Um, God says, you know what? Get married and eat it all. That's what God says in the New Testament, right? Get married and eat it all, right? 
Why do I say that? Remember the sheep that came down and Peter and God said, kill and eat? And Peter said, no, no, no. And the, the vision said to Peter, don't call unclean that which God now calls clean, which thus proving, thus saying that all foods were clean. Okay? So, that's why we can eat pig. Right? Praise God, I'm in the New Testament, I'll tell you that. Because I love pig. Right? I wouldn't make a very good Jew. That would be, be a temptation for me, right? <laughs> to sneak out across the border into Canaan, you know, to go get us some pig. But I don't do that. But I can do that now. Right? You can do that now. But false teachers, the point is this, beloved, and, and you know this, and if you don't, you need to wake up to it, because where are you following false teaching? Where are you influenced by, by the lack of grace? Where are you influenced by, by not truth, right? Authenticity is huge. We have to battle for this, because our natural tendency is not to follow truth. It's to follow my flesh, the lust of my flesh. False teachers know that, and they come with this... And they're very articulate, and they're very slick, and they're very good-looking, and they're very tall and handsome, and they're very good at what they do, and people are wooed and wowed by them, and they state these things, and we fall prey to it. Okay? But they're out to destroy you, not to feed you. So, that's, that's, so authenticity is uppermost in Paul's mind and in God's mind, and it should be in our mind. Okay? These false teachers that we're all looking at here, are energized by Satan. They speak his lies and his deceptions. Their doctrine, their teaching, doesn't lead to Christ, but away from Christ. Right? It doesn't lead to Christ. It leads away from Christ if it's not from Christ. Okay? So then, go to 2 Corinthians, please. Second <laughs> Corinthians 11. Now Paul's going to give us a really great description here, false teaching, and this is so instructive. Okay? And if you know anything about the Corinthian church, man, there were false teachers that just invaded and they attacked Paul and his character and his motives and his doctrine. So he writes here in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, I wish that you would bear me a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, verse 2, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Okay? But in verse 3, there's a problem. I'm afraid that is the serpent deceived Eve back in Genesis 2, 3, sorry, by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity, my text says, of devotion to Christ. Hey, look where he goes here. He goes all the way back to the original temptation, the original sin. And he shows that as the serpent deceived Eve, which is to say that's what he's still doing today. He draws their attention back to Genesis 3. Look how the serpent worked and the approach he took on Eve in that same way is how he works today. Because he says in verse 3, as in the same way the serpent deceived Eve, 
by his craftiness. Now get this, listen to this, please. You have two people in the original creation in the garden of God, the paradise of God, and they lacked absolutely nothing. And if they did, they wouldn't know what they lacked because everything's so new. They had no, they had no uh, deficiencies. And God walked with them and God gave them to eat from every tree in the garden. There was nothing deficient. How deceptive and how crafty must the serpent be when he can convince her that God's withholding something? That's how good he is. And you think you're going to match him on your own. You are in for a rough ride. Right? We, we have the scriptures, we have the spirit, we have the church. We can battle him. I'm not, but don't think he is a minimal foe. And he's the energy behind every false teacher. Every false prophet is energized by this dude who deceived Eve from the Garden of Eden. And notice what it was that he did in verse 3. By the craftiness, your minds will be led astray from simplicity, impurity, devotion to Christ. Do you see? That tells you what he's after. The goal of Satan's false teaching, he cannot steal your salvation, Christian, but he can mess with your devotion to Christ. And he can draw you away from a simple, pure devotion. And get you all attracted into other things and distracted into this and all the worldly stuff that looks good. They're like trinkets. They're like, they're like bass lures that draw big old bass away, right? Those temptations. The devil knows. He's been effective. He knows how to tempt you. And these false teachers come to draw you. And it's according to our flesh, you see. And, but it has to do with our devotion to Jesus Christ. Okay? Alright. Look at verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, and you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Verse 6, But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. In other words, these false teachers will come and say, Paul is telling you everything. He's inferior. He doesn't have full knowledge. Paul is refuting that. says, No, no, I am, I am not least to the most in- preeminent apostles. I have the same information and the same message. False teachers want to draw you away from the authentic ministry. Paul is the authentic ministry. Okay? Alright. Now, I know that's a long way, but go down to verse 13 of this same chapter. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves, notice the intentionality, as apostles of Christ. In 14, he's not surprised, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's fascinating. He is a deceptive foe. He is a formidable foe. He's effective, very effective, But we don't have to lose to him. We have the scriptures and the spirit of God and we have instruction. But the point of this is I want to make aware to us again, please, there are false teachers. 
There are false apostles. And they are energized by Satan and their goal is to destroy. And they want to steal your love for Christ. They want to diminish it. They want to to divert you off, you see. And he's, if, he can't, if he couldn't be able to divert your attention, these, these warnings would be irrelevant. You know what it means? Christians can divert away. Ask the church in Ephesus. You've lost your first love. Talking to believers. So, be careful. We need to fight for the truth. And authenticity is important, most important. Now think of this. If you are believing a false gospel, following a false Jesus, are you truly converted? Does a false gospel justify a sinner? Can submitting to a false teaching, no matter how sincerely, sanctify you? All the answers are no. Does the Holy Spirit accompany false doctrine to produce Christ-likeness? No. Does following a false Jesus please God? No. How important then is the truth? How important is it to follow an authentic ministry? Paul says directly to those who distort the true gospel in Galatians 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, he's to be accursed. Damned. That's a strong word. Paul says, go to hell. He didn't say that a lot. (laughs) Must one become Jewish in order to be saved? Must one become a practicer of Mosaic law in order to become saved? No. Must you be baptized to be saved? Sounds pretty good. Right? Thief on the cross might have issues. Is Jesus Christ all God and all man? Is His sacrifice sufficient for our entire salvation? Or must we add to His work to ensure our place with God? How many beads do you have to rub? How many saints do you have to pray to? How many old ladies must you help across the street? Right? Either that cross was fully sufficient or it's void. Yeah? You see, false teaching is huge. And the most effective false teaching is the one that looks most like the truth. Because we're not very... Our defenses aren't up. It's so important. Does abstaining from marriage and certain foods make me a better Christian? Does abstaining from foods and marriage make me more acceptable to God? How about this? Does reading my Bible every day assure my salvation? No. Do I need Mary or do I need other saints? Do I need another mediator? to approach God? Or is Christ a sufficient mediator? You see, those are false deals because it diverts your mind off of your simple, pure devotion of Jesus Christ. It's huge. Absolutely huge. Are we not to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind and soul and strength? That's pretty singular, isn't it? That's pretty central-focused. That's not sharing room with a lot of others. (laughs) That's why he drew the analogy from marriage. I betrothed you like a 
virgin to Christ and now you're following these others, you see? No, come back to to Christ. That's why the authenticity is so important. Does the Mormon Jesus save? No, there's there's an ex-Mormon that says no. (laughs) We know that, right? How about... uh, how about the Muslim Mormon? Does he save? No. Are we following an authentic Christian ministry? Now before we read our passage, this is all introduction, and you can tell I'm only going to get to one verse. Um, that was on purpose. But I felt it important. False teachers are the most easily acceptable today than ever in history with that stupid thing that we call a phone. You can call up any false teaching you want on that thing from the comfort of your own home. Right? Now, go back to Ephesians, please. As we go break open this passage, like I said, we only get to one verse, but I want to draw your attention to, to some key words and phrases and repetitions in this passage because this is where we learn what is the emphasis of the Spirit of God. What is Paul emphasizing in this passage? Now, I want to draw your attention to four things in particular. Verse 2 and verse 7 and verse 8 is this phrase. We'll look at verse 2. God's grace which was given to me for you. God's grace, which was given to me for you. That is repeated in verse 7, and it's referenced in verse 8. Okay? Second is the word mystery. In verse 3, 4, and 9, you see verse 3, the mystery. Verse 4, it's called the mystery of Christ. And in verse 9, it is the mystery. Okay? And just by way of definition, mystery, according to Paul's usage of it in the New Testament, is something that was shrouded in the past that has been made known now. So that it's no longer a mystery. Okay? It's been revealed. We know what it is. Okay. But notice, three times he mentions mystery in this passage. So you have God's grace given. You have the mystery, mystery of Christ. Third phrase and word I want to look at is verse 2 and in verse 9. Verse 2 is the word stewardship. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, that same Greek word is used in verse 9, but it's translated in my New American Standard as administration. It's the same word though. So verse 9 should say, and to bring to light what is the uh, stewardship of the mystery. Those two phrases, those are strong ideas that describe an authentic ministry. So thus far, we have grace that's given, we have mystery made known, and we have a stewardship. Okay, That's all just by observation, picking up the stones on the top. Number four phrase, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 10, is this phrase, made known. Look at verse 3. That by revelation there was made known to me. That's in verse 3. Verse 5, he says, While which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, it has now been revealed. Made known is found in verse 10. Look at what it says in 10. It says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Okay. In verses 3 and 5 is the idea of revelation. 
Look at verse 3, that by revelation there was made known. And then verse 5, it has now been revealed. That's the same apocalypsis word where we get apocalypse from. Okay, The book of Revelation is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The Greek word apocalypse means to uncover, to remove a shroud. Okay, It's like, a, it's like the artist that has that sheet over its car, the Whatever they do to things made out of clay, right? What is that called? A statue? What is it? Sculpture. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And they shroud it, you know, and they have everybody come around. Nobody sees what it is because it's covered. It's a mystery. You remove the shroud. That's apocalypsis. Okay? That's to remove that which was covering so that now you see. So then... Up to this point, by brief observation of this section of of 1 through 13, we see that the source of Paul's ministry is God's direct revelation. It is revealed to whom he has chosen and commissioned to preach it, and it is a gift of grace. So authentic ministry is one of revelation. It is one of grace. Okay? It is, it is one that comes from God and points to God. And as we work through this in the next couple of weeks, there's some really amazing stuff that will come out of this passage that just kind of thrills my heart. But I want to frame this up as we begin to wind this down under three headings to describe to us this authentic ministry. Verse 1 is this phrase, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Okay? The prisoner of Christ Jesus. That heading followed in verse 2, which we'll look at next week, the stewardship of God's grace. And then 3, the third heading to help us understand the authentic ministry, is the minister of grace. Those phrases, simply from the text will help us come to a deeper understanding and be able to observe and identify a ministry that God has indeed called. And it starts with Paul, and hopefully it comes to us. (laughs) So then, as you look at this, look at how Paul identifies. We're going to look at that first verse. We're going to look at this phrase, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And I want you to notice there in verse 1 how Paul identifies himself, but I want you to notice by what he doesn't say. Okay, Notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Israel. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say he's even a prisoner of Caesar, but he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Okay? Through obedience to Christ, he became a prisoner His imprisonment is not a sign of God's displeasure or that his ministry is false. But to the contrary, it is actually a test that proves his authenticity. He is a chosen vessel of Christ to represent the risen King of glory. He, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, says of himself that he is an ambassador of Christ At the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 20, he says there that he is an ambassador in chains. Okay? An ambassador is an emissary, obviously. An ambassador goes to a foreign place to represent the homeland. He is an ambassador in chains 
because he does represent the homeland. Okay? Just amazing. His loyalty, his devotion, his love for Christ, seen in his submission to his Lord even when it cost his freedom. Listen to that again. His loyalty, his devotion, his love for Christ is seen in his submission to his Lord even when it costs him his freedom. False teachers will never do this. Authenticity is proven by what you're willing to submit to, who you're submitting to. Okay? His willingness to suffer hardship for Christ, for the gospel, is proof of his authenticity. His sincere love of Christ and of people and his genuine faith in the gospel is evidence that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now go to 2 Timothy, please. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul's such a great example for us. Christ is obviously the ultimate but as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He is a great example. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 8. This is Paul's swan song. This is after his imprisonment in Ephesians' letter. But look at verse 8. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So he's emphasizing again that he is the prisoner that belongs to Jesus Christ and he's calling Timothy to join in to his suffering. That's fascinating. Join me in suffering. False teachers will not call you to that. In verse 11 of the same chapter, look at what he says. For which I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. He was appointed to those. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. There is his trust in Christ, his faith in Christ, in his gospel, that he's willing to suffer this imprisonment. Now go over to chapter 2, look at verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Verse 9 says, For which tells you the gospel is why he suffers hardship, verse 9, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Isn't that glorious? He says that I am suffering for the gospel, even to imprisonment, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Verse 10 he gives the bottom line of why he does these things in verse 10. I endure these, notice, so that the elect would come to faith. It's for the purity of the gospel. An authentic ministry cares more about the purity of the gospel than their own freedom, their own comforts, you see, because they have a faith in Christ that they will be rewarded. They will be blessed. It's not just suffer for suffer's sake. It's suffer for the sake of Christ and He will reward you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah? So, 
Do you remember why? What time is it? <laughs> Do you remember what Paul's? <laughs> um, why Paul is in chains? Why is he imprisoned? Right. Well, there's a few passages I want to take you to in Acts. So if you'd go to Acts 20, please. It's just really good stuff. Paul inspires me, I'll tell you. I just, I, I, I love hanging out with him through the scripture. <laughs> um, here's Paul's authenticity. We see it here in Acts 20. He's called the, the Ephesian elders together in verse 17 because he's, he's on his way passing through knowing that he's going to be arrested. And so he calls the Ephesian elders together and he begins to teach, uh, mention to them how he was in the past and how he's going to be in the future here. Look at what it says in verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. So he's calling them to remember how he was. Verse 19, how was he? Well, he was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me, notice, through the plots of the Jews. So his ministry was always in opposition to the Jews. Okay, Now remember Ephesians, Paul is explaining his ministry as it relates to the Jewish-Gentile unity. He's coming here, now here we are in Acts 20. His ministry was always opposed by the Jews. Verse 20, here's his authenticity and faithfulness. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. And from house to house. So publicly and privately he taught. Verse 21, what was his message? Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. There you go of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. His message was to both Jews and Gentiles. The same gospel message. Okay, Look at verse 22. He moves into his present. He says, But now, and now, behold, bound by the Spirit, not chains yet, but bound by the Spirit, in verse 22, I am on my way to Jerusalem. That's a dangerous place for a guy preaching the gospel. Look at what it says. Not knowing what will happen to me there. Verse 23. Except this, that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Stopping right there. Don't you think the next phrase would have said, you know what, so I went over to Philippi. I changed routes. I found another, another travel agent. No. He's warned that this is awaiting him. Look at the next verse 24. Talk about this is authenticity here, but I do not consider, I do not calculate my life of any account as dear to myself. Why? So that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That's an authentic servant of Jesus. This is authentic ministry, man. You want to follow someone who's following Christ, this is the man you follow. And how do we follow him today? By following what he wrote down. And those of us we hope to be authentic today are those who are following in his steps because this is laid before us. This is like a snow plow, right? Opening up the, the snow drift so that you can follow, right? The Apostle Paul, who's following Jesus Christ, is laying this out. Authentic ministry follows in the steps of the Apostle Paul because it's Scripture. And to follow Christ 
is to follow Paul. To follow Paul is to follow Christ. If you think differently, you will find out someday that you were wrong. It's that important. I don't know if I can just... And I don't know I'm speaking to the choir, but this is eternal stuff. This is, this is God-glorifying stuff. We need to understand this. We're, a sleepy Laodicean church does not honor God. We have to take this serious. There are false teachers, and we're going to call them out if we need to, because they affect the soul. Paul is so... Verse 24 is it just, I love, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Man, what's more dear to him? To faithfully fulfill what Christ gave him to do. Wow. Wow. Now go to Acts 21. The inclusion of the Gentiles, as we were reading there, it, without becoming a proselyte, is driving the religious Jews crazy. And in Acts 21, look at verse 19. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one to the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Okay, Gentile inclusion. Verse 20, And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. Verse 21, And they have been told about you, that you are teaching, here's the accusation, all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk in the cu- according to the customs. There's, you see, this is now, this is the trouble that Paul's running into. All right. Paul was asked, just summarizing what follows, to calm the Jewish wrath here, to calm it down. He was asked to go to the temple to perform the, the ritual rites of cleansing, okay, and to offer sacrifice for a week, and then the Jews would see him do that, and then they would know that Paul's not against the Jews. So that brings you then in chapter 21 all the way over there to verse 27. Look at what it says here. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, that is Ephesus, by the way, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. Of course, that's not true. Besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Next verse, 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed, they didn't see, they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Verse 30. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together. Look how intense this is. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him. Can you imagine? A report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once they took some soldiers and centurions and 32 and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began to ask who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when they could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. 35, when they got to the stairs, he carried, was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following, shouting. Same thing they shouted for Christ, right? Away with him. Away with him, right? 
Verse 22, or chapter 22, he gets into his testimony. They listen very carefully, intently, and they're okay until he gets over there into verse 21 of chapter 22. Look what it says. And he said to me, this is the end of his testimony here, and he said to me, that's Christ, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Whoops, Paul, you probably shouldn't have said that. Verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Because he went to the Gentiles. Right? That's the intensity of their hatred. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, right? He was, as we read back there in 2133, he was bound with two chains. When you get to chapter 24 and get to the end of chapter 24, verse 27, look here. But after two years of being in prison in Caesarea, he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was taken to Caesarea. After two years, verse 27, had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison for two years. Okay, He's in Caesarea. Why is he in prison? For speaking the gospel to Gentiles. That's why he's imprisoned. He's a prisoner of the Lord, not of Caesar. Authenticity is proven by what the person is willing to sacrifice for. His submission. What is he willing to suffer for? Paul suffered for the truth of the gospel. Right? Okay. Go to chapter 28. We'll finish the book of Acts here. It closes, if you know. Paul's in Rome. He's under house arrest. Chained 24 hours a day to a Roman centurion. But he has guests every day, it says in chapter 28. And Jewish people would come and debate with Paul. And Paul would try to convince them, persuade them from the Old Covenant, Old Testament scriptures on the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Messiahship of Christ. And he would do that day in and day out. And some would believe and some would go away unconverted. Verse 28 of chapter 28 After they hardened their heart, he says to them, Therefore, let it be known to you, to these Jews who did not repent, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. When they had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Verse 30, he stayed full two years in his own rented quarters. Two years in Caesarea, two years in Rome at the end of Acts here. So it's four years. By the time Ephesians comes, he's been imprisoned over five years for preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Okay? He is a prisoner of the Lord. Verse 30, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, was welcome. All who came, verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness, unhindered. The very message that got him arrested, he continued to preach, even while chained there. He continued to serve his Lord even through trials and sufferings. He is a prisoner of Christ, a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ. The authentic minister sees and knows himself as belonging to Christ. Paul says a Christian has been purchased by the blood of Christ and is no longer his own. Paul, the apostle, as we've been saying, is such a great example for us to follow. He was genuinely taken up with Christ. 
and sees his own life as expendable. He sees his life as open for Christ to do with him as he desires. That's the heart of authentic ministry. That Paul's proves his authenticity by his willing, joyful submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. His own life is expendable, open for Christ to use as He wished. As we begin, a couple verses to look at, but I want to finish here by going to 1 Thessalonians and share... Just a wonderful, wonderful passage. Paul writes, he gives a description of his ministry here. It's amazing how often Paul does do this, which tells me the Spirit wants us to get a good grip on the Apostle Paul's ministry so that we can hold it up as a template. Let's see, how does this one go? How does that one go? Right? Let's, let's put this pastor to the test. Right? Is he in it for the money? Right? Is he in it for the, for the perks? Right? Is he in it for the women, you know, the wine and booze? What's he in it for? Right? It'll show up. <laughs> Trust me, it'll show up. In First Thessalonians, look at chapter two. True ministry follows in the steps here. Look at verse one and following maybe to five or six, I'm not sure yet. For you yourselves know, verse one, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Verse two. But after we had already suffered, look at this now, and been mistreated in Philippi. Do you remember when he was mistreated in Philippi in Acts 16? The Philippian jailer, do you remember when Paul was in prison and they started singing and then an earthquake came and the doors flung open and the chains fell off? That's what he's talking about here. He was put in prison for preaching Christ in Philippi. After Verse 2, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God, to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Do you see the authenticness, the authenticity of Paul here? That even in the light of persecution, opposition, danger, he was faithful to his call. He stood up and said, Thus saith the Lord, knowing that it might have a rock pinging off his head. Right? Authenticity matters, right? It's, it's, it's the foundation of everything. Um, Paul is like Jesus when Jesus says in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Paul was so taken up with Christ. That he spoke even though he would get killed. That's incredible. Verse 3 says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. They're not hucksters. Verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, notice, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Right? Authentic Christian ministry is not oriented to pleasing men. It's to pleasing God. Now, we like to please men. I have to tell you, I like when you smile and you agree with what I'm saying. And, but you know what? That's not why I'm here. <laughs> and I hope that proves itself. 
Right? If not, call me on the carpet. We want to be authentic, don't we? We want to be authentic ministry. We want to follow in the steps of our Lord and of His Apostle. Because then you have confidence that the route you're going leads to God. And He says in verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Isn't that amazing? He did not pull the apostle card and trumpet on them. He came underneath them, not on top of them. It's incredible. It's amazing. It sounds like he's been influenced by the good shepherd. Doesn't it? John 10, Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And every subsequent shepherd, that under-shepherd that follows in the steps of Christ, taken up with him and consumed by him, will do the same. They will do the same because that's their calling. Because they, they live in light of him. And they want to know his words of affirmation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Authentic ministers of Christ, and closing this down, is the great need of His church. Isn't it? It's the great need of His church. It's growing smaller, beloved. Seminaries are producing counterfeits by the hundreds, right? Which is deplorable. So we need to be praying and looking and pushing for authenticity, As leaders go, so people go, right? So pray for us here. Pray for us diligently, right? That authenticity is the guiding star. And pray for God to raise up men within us here and every other faithful place. That God would raise up men who will take on the the baton, right? And take on the mantle and see it worthwhile to suffer for the sake of Christ so that the elect would come to faith. That's what we need, right? We need men who love Christ more than themselves and who are fearless. I want to be like that. Pray for me that way, please. Listen to these final words here. Because some would say, well, that's Paul. He's, you know, he's, he's a superstar. And he is, I mean, from our perspective, he's amazing. But what about Timothy? He gets a bum rap a lot. And, you know, he was fearful. I, I'm, I'm more like Timothy, <laughs> Then like Paul. I want to be like Paul, but I'm more like Timothy, right? But I love Philippians 2, and this is where we'll close this down. Here's an authentic man. Philippians 2, look at verse 19 through 22, probably. Look at what he says. Paul writes to these beloved church, and he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. So that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He can't go himself because he's chained to a Roman centurion. Verse 20. Why is he sending Timothy? Well, I have no one else of kindred spirit, notice, who will genuinely or authentically be concerned for your welfare. What do you mean? Well, verse 21. For they all seek the others after their own interests. Not those of Christ. But you know of his proven worth, Timothy's, that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Right? Paul's authentic. 
Timothy is authentic. Epaphras is authentic. There's, as you go through, there's many, many, many more. Um, find authenticity. Gravitate, cling, hang on, pray for. If it's not authentic, chuck it, throw it away, and find authenticity. Because if it's authentic, it comes from Christ. If it comes from Christ, it leads to Christ. If it's not authentic, it's not from Christ, and it will not lead you to Christ. So pray. Thanks for letting me uh, get that off my chest. <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus setting the tone and blazing the trail. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, even young Timothy. And help us, Father, to follow in their steps. Help us to be authentic, sincere, and genuine. And may we be concerned for the welfare welfare of others over ourselves and may we seek the glory of Christ over and beyond any comfort Holy Spirit you must do this so Holy Spirit have your way with us continue the work you began and make us more like Christ as this day goes on and as these days grow darker we praise you Lord for having us here And may the light of Christ radiate from this place in such an intense beam of light that like bugs drawn to a flame, so sinners will be drawn to the gospel. Glorify yourself in the salvation of many, Lord, and help us to be faithful. I thank you for your people here. May you bless them. All for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.